Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Quinn Dunkey. Quinn, welcome. Hi, I'm glad to be here. It's really great to have you. Um, who are you? <laughs> who am I? Uh, well, let's see. I am a female engineer slash game developer slash uh, troublemaker. Oh, I like it. So, um... The reason I heard, or the way I heard about you was from our mutual friend, Ken Gagney, who was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. And one thing that he and I wanted to talk about was retro computing, which he's really into, and we didn't have time. And he said, I know someone who can come and talk about retro computing and race cars and programming <laughs> and like all this stuff. Are you interested in being introduced to her? And I said, absolutely. So um, why don't you tell people what retro computing is? Yeah, okay. So retrocomputing is uh, essentially using uh, and modifying and playing with and fixing old computers just as a hobby. So retro, it means slightly different things to different people, but generally I think most people mean computers made in the 1970s, 80s, and maybe early 90s. So we're usually not talking about PCs here. We're usually talking about uh, you know, Apple IIs, Commodore 64s, Atari 8-bits, um, things like that. So generally 8-bit computers, but also some 16-bit as well. Um, so it's usually people that grew up with the stuff and sort of have that nostalgia for it. But uh, interestingly, increasingly, there's also young people uh, getting interested in it as well. We've got a number of people in the Apple II community writing software uh, and developing uh, tools for these machines that were, you know, born after they were off the market, which uh, I find really interesting. Huh. I wonder why. Yeah, I think uh, I think the appeal of them is the same regardless of age. Uh, it's the simplicity of it. Uh, you know, those machines were, uh, by today's standards, you know, not even barely glorified calculators. But uh, the simplicity of them is very appealing. It's, uh, I guess, the same reason people like old cars, right? Uh, if you really like uh, that sort of pure driving experience, you know, you want to drive uh, you know, an old British sports car rather than something modern with 58 computers in it and 16 kinds of traction control and whatever. So it sort of gets you back to the to the roots of what the you know experience was originally about. Yeah, I read about all the time people who are like, oh, yeah, I learned I got into computer engineering because I was, you know, a child and I sat on the floor with my mom or dad and we pulled this thing apart and we put it back together again. And um, this is how I learned. And I think about doing that, you know, now and it's it's a completely different experience, you know. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you, in those days, you had to be an expert to use them. Uh, I mean, computers nowadays are, are appliances, but. Uh, you know, much like a, a modern car, again, to use that analogy, you know, anybody can get in a Toyota Camry and turn the key and drive, uh, and doesn't matter if you know how any of it works. Uh, and it's the same with modern computers. So whereas those, you know, the old machines, uh, you know, you did have to know a lot about how they worked. You know, there wasn't enough memory or processing speed or disk storage for fancy interfaces and uh, elaborate help and so on. So you really had to sort of know what you're doing. And so it made you uh, very technically competent in a hurry, uh, or else you moved on to other things. I guess it was sort of self-selecting because if you didn't care about that, knowing this technical stuff, you just quickly lost interest in computers uh, during the 80s. So uh, uh, that's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was very formative in that way. I mean, I think uh, 
especially for for programmers like myself, uh, you know, these these old computers just beg to be programmed. I mean, you turn them on and, they, you know, they drop you in a basic prompt. Most of them had basic in ROM, so you didn't even need any kind of storage to, to program them. Uh, whereas modern computers, you know, they, they boot up into a state where programming is not possible and you have to install all kinds of software and learn all kinds of things to, to, to write your own software for them. So whereas the old machines writing software was essential because they even in the early days there wasn't very much of it so programming you had to write whatever software you wanted to use so uh yeah it was uh it was really educational i think for a whole generation of engineers yeah so one of the projects that you have i guess has been ongoing for you is um veronica mm -hmm. do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah, so I guess the, the short version of that story is that, uh, again, going back to the Apple II, I was always really interested in Steve Wozniak uh, and his story. He was this guy who uh, was interested in computers, uh, didn't have any formal training in electrical engineering, but just really wanted a computer, and so he just sort of sat down and built one and uh, turned into an empire. But uh, at the time, you know, he was just building himself a computer because he wanted one. And I just was really interested in that, how someone could just sort of sit down and figure out how to do that. And uh, so I'd always had it in the back of my mind to, to try and do that myself. And so uh, five years ago, I did uh, finally get to it. And so, uh, yeah, I just sort of started kind of the same way he did with roughly, you know, 1970s era chips and uh, just started reading and learning as much as I could and piecing it together and uh, earlier, I think early, well, I guess it was late last year, I finally got to the point where uh, it's a computer that you can uh, turn on and it's got graphics and you can type on it and you can write code for it and it will run code and uh, there's a little Pong game in there. It's got uh, Nintendo game pads and so it's sort of what I consider the minimally usable computer. Uh, my definition of computer uh, was something that you could use to write software for itself on itself. So it doesn't have to be tethered to any other computer or anything like that. You can just turn it on and write software on it and it will run it. So uh, uh, that was it was an amazing experience. It took me, uh, yeah, like I say, about five years, and I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, I certainly had it easier than Steve Wozniak did because the, I have Google, and, and he did not, and uh, I have access to all kinds of chips that he did not. And uh, uh, so, you know, I had uh, many, many resources that helped me along the way, and it was, yeah, it was a tremendous amount of fun. So how do you even start start with that? Do you, I mean, obviously you have a dream and a I don't know, but um, how do you start gathering components and and doing the research and and putting it all together? That seems like a big. I mean, to me, it seems like a big undertaking because I'd be starting with no knowledge at all. So, yeah. Well, so I started with. Uh, I mean, I knew I knew I needed to learn some electronics first of all, and so I started with this uh, book called Make Electronics, uh, put out by. Uh, the same people that do Make Magazine, and uh, that's a great book for to start with for someone who doesn't know anything about electronics. Uh, it starts at zero and uh, just really eases you into it. And then kind of once you've finished that book, you kind of work your way through this series of lessons and projects in this book, um, then you sort of have enough knowledge to start dipping your toe into the digital side of things, uh, the, you know, the chips and the digital logic. And there... Uh, my background in computer science definitely helped. I mean, we took, you know, uh, Boolean logic and so on in, in computer science. So I knew that I had the, had some theory there to to, uh, to help. Um, but, 
then it was just a sort of a case of, again, sort of finding resources online. I mean, if you Google, so I knew I wanted to, I wanted to use the 6502 CPU, uh, which is the 8-bit CPU that was in the Apple II and the Atari 8-bits, and a variant of that was in the Commodore 64. Uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System has uh, has it. It was a really popular CPU in the 80s. And uh, so if you Google, you know, homebrew 6502 computer, uh, you'll find all kinds of resources, uh, how-to guides and... Um, uh, whole clubs and uh, communities of people to, to do this sort of thing. Uh, building your own computers from scratch is, is, is a whole hobby uh, that people engage in. So, you know, there's people out there that have built, you know, five or six of them and just kind of do it. So, uh, so for example, uh, I believe it's 6502.org is one of the big ones. And they have online forums and documents and, uh, you know, all kinds of great information for how to get started. So that's kind of where I started. And then uh, from there, you just sort of branch out. It was just a case of I'd think about the next piece I wanted to add to the computer, and then I would Google a lot to try and figure out how to do that and experiment and uh, Google and experiment and Google until I got it to work. So, Wow. Um, and, you know, along the way, I had to teach myself um, how to uh, make circuit boards, and so I etched all the circuit boards myself in my kitchen, um, and I had to... Uh, of course, you, where it gets really educational is when you start having things go wrong. So I learned all about electrical noise and electromagnetic interference and parasitic capacitance and parasitic inductance and uh, all the kind of dirty electrical engineering stuff that uh, would have been good to know <laughs> before I started, but uh, I had to learn along the way when things didn't work. So, Wow. I'm just thinking about like sitting in my kitchen trying trying to accomplish that with you know two cats underfoot. <laughs> just... <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, the funny thing is about a lot of this stuff is that it's easier than you think it is, uh, especially what's great about building retro computers is that, you know, the people that built this stuff in the 80s didn't have much more than that. Uh, you know, the Apple II was built in Steve Wozniak's garage and uh, with basic tools. So these these older components are really are quite simple. So you don't have to uh, have a ton of knowledge to get them to do stuff, and they are fairly forgiving you know, if your soldering isn't very good or your circuit board layout isn't very good, uh, you know, these old uh, technologies, you're very forgiving of all that. You know, the modern stuff, you know, you need, yeah, you need 10 PhDs in electrical engineering working together to lay out that, that board because the clock speeds are really high and it's, it's all very uh, complex to get it working right. But yeah, this old stuff, it's, you know, it's like Lego. You can just kind of plug it together and it mostly just works. That's awesome. So how did you get started in kind of this, like, I guess, what, what was your first interest in computers, I think is what I'm trying to ask. Uh, I guess uh, I get that asked, asked that question a lot, uh, probably because being female and an engineer uh, seems to always bring that question out of people. But uh, it's funny, boys never get asked, so why are you into computers? Well, it's just sort just of assumed because, they might right? Yeah, well, of course I am. Uh, so yeah, my parents, uh, in a moment of remarkable foresight, uh, bought a computer for my sister and I, uh, in 19, I want to say 81, something like that. Uh, and, uh, they decided, Hey, these computers look like they're going to be something. So maybe we should get one. And, uh, they brought it home and my sister didn't show much interest. She's four years older than me. And I think I was six at the time. And, uh, as my mom likes to say, I crawled up on the stool one day and just haven't got off since. Uh, there, I mean, it was just as soon as I looked at a computer at that age, I just, I just knew this was me. This was my thing. Uh, I just clicked. So, 
Um, it's just, yeah, I just don't remember a time when I didn't want to do this, honestly. That's kind of my story too. And I don't ask because of your gender. It's because it's so exciting to me. And I can actually remember the first time I sat at a computer Mm. and that, that thrill I got, like it did nothing. It was, um, I don't even know what it was. It was in a preschool classroom. Um, I was in, I don't know, probably kindergarten or first grade, um, and I sat down, had a green screen, and there were no discs for it, so it did absolutely nothing. And I just remember sitting there at like at the prompt, just typing and yeah. being so enthralled <laughs> with with just like I press this button and this thing appears on the screen. And and I've you know, we didn't I didn't get my first computer until I was in the eighth grade. I had them, you know, in the classroom or whatever, but it was just amazing to me. Like I can still, you know, 25, 30 years later, I can still remember how thrilling that was. Yeah. I, I kind of mourn for kids today because they grow up with all of this technology right in front of them and they never get that sense of absolute wonder. Yeah, I wonder a lot about that. I, I have a five-year-old nephew and uh, and he's amazing, but it, it's hard to, I feel like he's going to have that moment. I just can't predict what it's going to be with. I don't know, maybe it'll be with uh, CSS web design or something. I don't know, like it'll be some modern thing. Um, but it's hard to imagine because he, he doesn't know a world, uh, without the internet and without tablets and smartphones. And, uh, so I think it's really interesting. I have no idea what's going on in his head because his world is so different than the one that, that, that I grew up in. Um, but yeah, that initial experience, I, I liken it to, you know, musicians tell the same story. The first time they touched a piano or, or picked up a guitar, it just made sense to them. And uh, I think it's the same with, with a lot of us who grew up with these machines. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. I think it's so cool, though. I just, retro computing isn't something I even um, considered until I met Ken, you know, over the summer. And he was like, I'm really into this. And I'm like, what what is it I don't know what I don't know like I get what the words mean but what do you do yeah um oh go ahead oh I was just gonna say I I I was also surprised I mean I had always kind of had this nostalgia in the back of my head for the machines I remembered them fondly but I only recently got into kind of the modern retro computing scene myself and uh, uh I was just blown away by how many people do it and how passionate they are about it and uh I mean, the podcasts and the blogs and the books and the the conferences, you know, it's it's huge. And uh, uh, it's it's amazing to me that uh, people love just still using these things. Um, so that, yeah, that got me back into it. And like any hobby, it's at the end of the day, it's really about the people. And uh, I've met a lot of really great people through this this hobby. So, yeah, that's that's what I love about podcasting, too, is just how many people I'm meeting. Um, so another one of your interests is like, you're really into pinball, aren't you? I am. Yeah. That's also kind of a recent acquisition in my staple of, of hobbies, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, kind of, I kind of got drawn into it through retro computing and retro gaming. Uh, I've been into, uh, retro arcade games again, getting started with that through nostalgia. Uh, I built a, a main machine and was having fun with that and was listening to the podcasts and and so on for that hobby and then kind of got drawn over into pinball uh, as a result and um you know if you're into anything kind of mechanical or engineering related then pinball machines are just wonderlands i mean they're this this blend of 
software and hardware and art and design and game design and uh, they're yeah they're quite amazing little universes uh, into themselves and and pinball people are nuts i mean they are they are more into that hobby than any one is into any other hobby that i've ever seen so uh, that's that's there's so much passion there it's it's kind of fun so do you have a pinball machine i do i finally took that plunge uh last year and bought one and uh yeah, it's it's a bit like uh, collecting cars. I, know, I, was, I always bring everything back to cars for analogies, but uh, it's a bit like collecting cars in that you have to, let's face it, be of a certain economic status to be able to do it, and uh, you have to have space. And so, yeah, I have one, and uh, I mean, there are people that have twenty or thirty of them, but uh, you know, the things are huge, and uh, you know, they weigh four hundred pounds. So, uh, you know, I had to. I had to buy special equipment to move it and all this kind of thing. Um, so, but yeah, I've got one and it's set up in my uh, in my spare room and uh, yeah, I love it to death. So, do you maintain it yourself? Have you learned about how to do all of that? Or yeah, it's uh, it's definitely best to view it as a hobby, not as an activity, because it is. Uh, these machines are really high maintenance. Are Just, they really? Uh, yeah, really high maintenance, and especially the older they are, the worse it is. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, I've got a Johnny Mnemonic pinball machine, which is uh, a Bally Williams machine from uh, 1993. And so it's about as modern as, as these machines get. Uh, but um, I guess it's sort of one generation removed from the current designs. But uh, uh, yeah, even that one, I mean, it it breaks down probably, I don't know, every 50 or 60th game, something like that. Uh, there's just, there's so many moving parts in them and... Uh, you know, you've got a, a great big steel ball bearing crashing into things. So, you know, things are going to break and, and they get dirty. And uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of maintenance for sure. But that's that's the fun of it. I mean, I think you can't, you can't do it unless you enjoy the maintenance. So, I mean, I like, similar to how people like working on cars, you know, they're fun to work on if you like that sort of thing. So you you know, you pop the hood on it and you get the tools out and you, uh, and you go to town on them. So, um, so when I got mine, it was actually in quite a state of disrepair. It wasn't functioning, um, very well at all. So I spent quite a bit of time just kind of restoring it and getting it back into working order. Uh, and then again, just like cars, you start by fixing it. And then once it's working well, then you start modifying it for, for, uh, just fun. And so you start adding with pinball machines these days, the trend is to add, uh, replace the old incandescent light bulbs with LED lighting, and uh, there's all kinds of modifications people do, adding new toys to the play field or adding uh, different kinds of effects, lighting effects, sound effects, different things like that. Uh, there's a massive homebrew community in pinball uh, that people write their own software for the machines. They retheme them. Uh, you know, there's a guy that turned a Sword of Fury pinball machine into a Buffy the Vampire Slayer pinball machine. Nice. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. Uh, Someone took the Johnny Mnemonic machine, the same one I have, and turned it into a, a machine theme for the Matrix movie, um, which is sort of fun because they're both kind of cyberpunk movies starring Keanu Reeves. So that's sort of a, a, a fitting conversion. Uh, so, yeah, there uh, again, there's a lot of overlap with retro computing because these 90s and earlier era pinball machines have an 8-bit computer in them. Uh, they were sort of a custom design that each pinball company had, but it's, a, it's an 8-bit uh, computer and so you can write software for it and play with it in the same ways that you would play with an Apple II or a Commodore 64. Does 3D printing help with the modifications? Is that something that people do? It does, yeah. In fact, uh, there's a very burgeoning, so pinball's on a real upswing right now. It's coming back in a big way and uh, there's a real 
burgeoning uh, what they call boutique pinball uh, industry formings. There's a half dozen or more now small companies building new pinball machines, and uh, they're using a lot of, of 3D printing and other sort of these new additive and, and uh, independent manufacturing techniques. And uh, uh, so that's, yeah, there's uh, a lot of these boutique machines that have 3D printed parts in them. Uh, so yeah, it's it's not the uh, panacea that we would maybe hope for uh, because the parts that you can make in a 3D printer tend to be small and they tend to be a little bit on the fragile side. Um, so there's some limitations, but they're definitely a really valuable tool to have in, in the arsenal. So, and, and that's what's fun about repairing these machines is you learn new techniques. You know, I learned uh, vacuum forming in order to repair a ramp. You know, you can build a vacuum plastic vacuum former in your garage quite easily with you know some plywood and a shop vac. Um, so you can make your own ramps and, uh, you know, again, these machines were pretty old and a lot of the manufacturing techniques in them are actually pretty simple and you can do it yourself, um, with a little bit of effort. So that sounds amazing. I've never actually, I'm realizing I've never actually seen the inside of a pinball machine. So I I'm picturing like, I guess like a, a clock or a watch, like with a bunch of little, <laughs> little gears and, and, and doodads and springs. And that's probably not at all accurate, but that's what I've got in my brain right now. Well, so that's actually quite an accurate description really? of the older ones. Okay. So there's different generations. The earliest generations are what we call the electromechanicals. And those, mach- they, they basically were clockwork machines. So they used gears and, you know, springs and so on to maintain the score and keep track of of the balls and the targets and so on uh so then after that came the solid state machines and uh that's where we start to get some computerization happening and then nowadays uh, we have what we call the dmd or dot matrix display machines and they have a full full full-blown computer in them uh and uh, so everything just plugs into the computer and the computer manages all the lights and all the switches and all the solenoids and everything so uh but yeah the inside is is quite they're quite amazing. They're just packed full of electronics and mechanical parts and uh, a lot of a lot of custom stuff because each machine has to have unique kind of toys on it. Some toys have talking heads on them and some have, you know, dinosaurs that steal the ball. And, you know, there's all these, um, the Johnny Mnemonic machine has this robotic uh, glove that you can control and it grabs the ball with a magnet and moves it around. And, you know, so each of wow. these is a sort of custom mechanical engineering kind of project in itself. So... Well, I've never been good at pinball, but I'm really itching to play now talking to you because, I mean, it's always fun. Um, It usually goes straight down the middle and, you know, there's nothing I can do, but, um, but wow, I'm getting a little nostalgic and I don't have that much, that much pinball experience. You know, yeah, well, it's funny you bring that up because that's actually one of the things that got me into it was that uh, what I learned was that uh, pinball is actually a skill and it's actually quite a bit more it's it's a lot like poker in that people who don't know much about it assume there's a lot of luck in it and not very much skill and people who do it a lot uh, know that the opposite is actually true it's mostly skill and very little luck and that's true of pinball as well so basically anytime the ball drains either down the middle or down the the out lanes uh, it's your fault and uh, that sort of shocked me until I started uh, watching videos online of, you know, there's skills videos and instructional videos for how to play pinball. There's a series set of skills you learn uh, how to manipulate the ball with the flippers. And uh, uh, once you sort of learn some of those skills, then suddenly, yeah, it becomes a game of skill. And uh, there's also uh, nudging of the machine and some other techniques that are involved. So the games are designed so that the uh, 
very rarely will the game ever just kind of screw you. It won't just throw the ball down an out lane. It always, each shot that you make puts the ball back on your flippers, essentially. So as long as you make the shots you're supposed to be making, it'll always come back to you. So, uh, and you have a lot of control over where the ball goes, uh, depending on how you, how and when you, you, uh, you flip. So, uh, yeah, it's, there's a tremendous amount of skill in it. And, uh, that was really interesting to me. And as soon as I learned that, as soon as I found that out, it's like, oh, well, you know, now I gotta, I have to do this. <laughs> as soon as there's, there's a skill I can learn, well, I have to try it out. So, um, but yeah, that was part of why I bought one because trying to get good at these skills, uh, in our, in, uh, uh, bowling alleys was getting very expensive. <laughs> so what's your number one trick for people who need to increase their pinball skills? Yeah, well, I would start with, so there's this uh, organization called PAPA, the Professional Am- and Amateur Pinball Association, and they run uh, t- uh, tournaments and they have a world ranking system and so on. And they have a series of videos on their website uh, of sort of instructional videos for the various sets of uh, pinball skills. And, uh, you know, there's uh, drop catches and, and live catches and post passes and various different techniques that all have fancy names. And uh uh, learning those sort of basic skills. They have it broken down into basic and intermediate and advanced skills. And uh, uh, so the basic ones are quite easy to learn and you'll instantly get a lot better just doing that. And then you can kind of gradually, you know, work your way up from there. So um, yeah, that's where I would start. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to have to see if I can find a find a pinball machine and watch some videos because... Yeah, that's one of the one of the downsides. Unfortunately, uh, while pin, pinball is coming back in a really big way, it's not coming back on location, as they say. Uh, location pinball machines are still really rare. Uh, depends on the city. Some cities have a good scene. You know, Denver, uh, Chicago, um, Atlanta, uh, Seattle, Portland. There's a couple of cities, but for example, Los Angeles is very nearly a pinball desert, uh, for the most part on location, you know, it used to be in the seventies and eighties, you know, every restaurant and laundromat had a pinball machine in it, but, uh, they're mostly gone. So mainly people are playing in their houses and at uh, special tournaments and conferences and so on. So, uh, bowling alleys still sometimes have one. Uh, but, uh, of course the community to the rescue, there are pinball apps, uh, where they will show you a map of where all the pinball machines are, uh, with, oh ratings of their cleanliness and and condition and so on so uh that's a good way to go (laughs) okay so wait there are pinball tournaments yeah tournaments are quite a big thing in fact there's world rankings and there's people that actually do it professionally um as well so uh travel the country and earn their living playing pinball (laughs) that's awesome so so here's the thing that made me say wait what is are they how do they get the pinball machines? Do they pick locations where there are many pinball machines or do they bring them in? Yeah. So they hold the tournaments at locations okay. that ha- have machines. Yeah. So <laughs> that it makes can, more sense. <laughs> yeah. It can be as, as fancy as there are some professional locations that uh, exist. So for example, Papa that runs the major tournaments in the country, they have their own facility. Uh, I think it's in Chicago uh, that or Pennsylvania. I forget. Anyway, they have their own facility that has something like 400 machines in it. So they'll hold, they hold the big tournaments every year at their own facility. And there's other places like the, there's a pinball hall of fame in Las Vegas that has a lot of machines. So they'll hold tournaments there. So different facilities can hold like a Papa sanctioned tournament. Uh, And uh, in fact, some of the bigger collectors do it in their own houses. You know, there's collectors that have 20 or 30 machines. And so they'll have a tournament just in their house as well. I just had this mental image of carting in like 20 pinball machines to have a a tournament and and the logistics of 
finding that space. So I figured I was probably incorrect, but should maybe just ask? <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny, though. People are not shy about moving those things around. Uh, there are lots and lots of conferences. There's the Texas Pinball Show is a big one, and Midwest Gaming Classic has a lot of pinball machines. Uh, the uh, The Pinball Expo in Chicago is the big one every year. And those are conferences held just in regular hotel conference centers that are normally empty. And people bring in hundreds and hundreds of machines. And, you know, they rent trucks and dollies and there are special uh, hydraulic carts designed for the purpose of moving these things. And amazingly, people truck these things all over the country. So, and even ship them, you know, there's a technique for shipping them even. So, uh, yeah, people do it. People are nuts. Like I said, pinball people are crazy. I can't even imagine. I, I imagine like draping myself across it and being like, no, you're not, you're not moving my precious anywhere. <laughs> so that's, that just boggles my mind because it's contrary to my personality. Yeah, mine too. But yeah, it's good to remember, I think that these are commercial machines, right? Yeah. They, they're like payphones or vending machines. I mean, they were built to be abused. So you know, they, they're tough. They really are. Uh, you can shake them and knock them around and and so on. And they, they still hold up pretty well. I mean, they're old, so they don't hold up as well as they used to. But uh, yeah, they're, they're built to, to, to be abused for sure. So, okay, let's, there are like so many things that you're interested in that... Um, <laughs> not, not enough hours in the day. There sure. aren't. I don't understand how you do it all. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about was race car driving. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, another weird thing I, I seem to be into, and I'm not sure how it happened. Uh, well, I do know. Uh, so, yeah, I've always been into cars, and uh, a few years ago, well, I guess it's probably 10 years ago now, some friends of mine were going to do a, a track day, which is where uh, some some organization rents out a racetrack for the day, and uh, you just sort of come out and drive your car on it. And sometimes there's lessons, or sometimes there's not, uh, and you just sort of pay a certain amount of money to go out there for the day and it's it's a ton of, of fun and a great way to learn how to drive on a racetrack and so I was doing that for a few years and I met a bunch of friends through that and and uh, then one day about uh, I guess it's five years now ago uh, one of my friends that I'd met through that uh, was forming this race team and he said hey do you, do you want to join and I said sure <laughs> and so the rest is is history. We've been doing this uh, this for five years now, and it's it's amazing fun. Uh, I can't imagine uh, not doing it now. It's so much fun. So, what do you drive? So, well, we we do. Uh, our team has two cars right now, and we've got an '84 BMW and a '74 Lotus Elite. Oh. And uh, the format we do is uh, 24 hour endurance racing. So the car runs for 24 hours straight, and the uh, the drivers switch out usually somewhere between you know one and a half to three hour shifts in the car basically depending on your fuel range and uh, so the the goal is to get as many laps as possible in that twenty four hour period wow so uh, it's yeah it's a tremendous test of physical and, and mental endurance and uh, uh, so it's a lot about reliability you know because the car will break down during that period and so you know bring it in and we fix it as fast as we can and send it back out and uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's intense, uh, and it's just really a lot of fun. So, going in circles, though. Yeah, so we're driving on road courses. Okay. Which, that... Yeah, so it'll be like three or four miles a lap, maybe somewhere between 15 and 30 corners, something like that. That's not as bad. I always look at, like, uh, NASCAR, and I don't understand how they can just drive in circles like they do like I understand that it's a test of skill and all of that but 
I just can't imagine it. <laughs> yeah, there there's different kinds of race car people. Uh, there are NASCAR people, and there are other kinds of you know uh, race racing fans. So. I'm not an NASCAR person. I don't really get the appeal of it. I don't really understand it. Uh, it's a different kind of thing. Uh, the kind of racing we do would appeal to people that like Formula One, for example. That's sort of closer in format to, to what we do. Not that we're going anywhere near as fast as they do, but uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's more the format, kind of that European style of, of road racing. Uh, I think it's a lot more interesting. Certainly as a driver, it's more interesting. Yeah. So how do you practice for that? How do you train? Well, the, uh, the mainly... If, for the uh, the track days, like I say, um, that's a great way to learn. And uh, you know, but this kind of racing that we're doing, so we all, our, everyone on our team came into it, I think, with some track experience. Most of us have been doing track days uh, uh, at least for a little while. And uh, uh, but yeah, it's such a casual form of racing that we do that it honestly doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's, there's no money in it, so um, yeah, it's just for fun. If we don't do very well, that's okay. <laughs> nice. So a lotus, though. Yeah, well, so it's a uh, it, it's a funny kind of lotus. Uh, it's not a very desirable one. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I actually, actually, my, one of my daily drivers is a lotus. I have a lotus Elise, which is a, a sort of a modern lotus. Uh, but this lotus that we race is uh, seventy four, and it yeah, it wasn't a very good car when it was new, uh, honestly. But uh, it uh, for whatever reason we bought this thing, it appeals to a couple of our team members. And uh, I mean, by the time you're done turning something into a race car, there's not a whole lot of the original car left anyway. So it almost doesn't matter what you start with. How fun though. Um, so you also are a developer. Yes. Um, what kind of things do you do? So software, I, I, most of my career was in, uh, console games. So, uh, you know what they call AAA, Xbox, PlayStation, that kind of stuff. So I did that for, uh, I guess close to 20 years. And, uh, then I, a few years ago moved over to mobile, uh, smartphones and tablets and, uh, that was a lot of fun. I freelanced doing that for, for five years. And uh, just uh, very recently, I started work uh, at a uh, mobile development company. So I'm back uh, back working in an office again and uh, uh, really, really enjoying that. So uh, yeah, software, like I say from earlier, it's it's my passion. I mean, it's the number one thing. If I couldn't do anything else in my life but could still write code, that's, that is what I would do. And uh, it's the thing that I've done in my spare time when nobody was paying me and it's the thing that I love that someone will pay me to do, and it's the thing that gets me excited to get out of bed every morning. So what what's your what's your favorite language? Uh, you know, so yeah, my my motto is any language, any platform. Uh, you know, I've written everything from eight bit assembly language to uh, you know C sharp uh, and Java and everything in between. Um, so. Most of my career was in C++ uh, because that's what AAA game consoles are generally using. But, um, you know, my new job is all C-sharp, so I'm really getting into that. Uh, when I was doing freelancing on mobile, it was all Objective-C and Java because it was iPhone and Android. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, part well, the main thing that I like about doing this is that you are always learning new things. Uh, you know, I just I love learning new skills, uh, especially in software. So... 
uh, everything moves so fast that you have to be constantly learning. And that's, that's what I like about it. So if tomorrow someone tells me to go work on the server side of things, then I'll go learn, you know, PHP and CSS and, and Jenkins and whatever, um, Ajax and whatever the kids are using nowadays. <laughs> so yeah, it just, it changes so fast. You have to be quick on your feet and, and, uh, you know, if you have a good grounding in computer science, you know, the language, one language, to the next, they're all basically the same. The syntax varies, but the design patterns and the basic concepts are the same. So you can pick up a new language pretty, pretty easily. I love that, that that's your answer because I work in software development and, um, it's interesting. I, I put out on Twitter, there was a project I wanted to work on and it was like, okay, I don't know PHP. What's, what's the best way to learn PHP? Does anyone have like a resource that helped them get on their feet and like judgment? They were like, why do you want to learn PHP? You, know, you, you should learn Ruby and you should do. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. No, I have a reason. And, yeah. but people get so, um, into what they're doing and yeah. like like it just made like that some of the apple developers i know who are like why would you use python and <laughs> and um so i really enjoy that your answer is just like just just give it to me and and yeah. and i'll do it yeah yeah well and I, I think it's there's this weird sort of trend in software i think made worse by things like linkedin to sort of enumerate the languages you know as sort of bullet points like like Xbox achievements or something or like the, that that's a, a skill in itself that oh I know you know C sharp but uh, I think this skill is the ability to pick up a new language at the drop of a hat because that's really what's valuable I mean whatever languages you know are probably going to be useless in six months anyway so when you know everything shifts to whatever the new thing is so uh, yeah, I don't see that sort of bullet point. These are the languages I know on my resume thing as being very informative. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like going back to LinkedIn, like someone endorsed me for WordPress. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Um, I know that one of the projects you worked on was for the um, the Allo Clip Lens, mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the app for that. So I know a lot of my listeners and a lot of my friends who listen are actually in the Apple community. So, so they'll know that one um, for sure. But I'd like to talk to you a little bit about going from freelancing to... Um, to taking a job somewhere. Can you talk about or will you talk about why you decided to do that? Yeah, uh, it was just sort of uh, a change of pace. I think I needed it. Uh, the freelancing was fun. I liked uh, I liked working from home a lot. I liked, you know, making my own hours and I liked, uh, uh, you know, working independently and not having to answer to anybody. Uh, I liked getting paid hourly. Uh, all that stuff was great. Uh, but uh, yeah, after a while, it just, uh, it's easy to get into kind of a rut. And again, I think it, at, at the end of the day, it comes back to, to that learning thing again. I got to the point where I felt like I wasn't learning anything new. Uh, I was writing, you know, the same sets of routines and Objective-C in Java over and over again for this, you know, similar kinds of apps for different clients. And I just, uh, yeah, I just felt stagnant and uh, I needed to uh, just shake things up a bit. So, and it also didn't, uh, or also, I guess, helped the decision that, that, uh, the, uh, the market seemed, seemed to be, seems to be shifting. Uh, there wasn't this, just wasn't as much work out there for me as, as there had been before. So, you know, when I started freelancing in, uh, 2009, uh, I was just turning down clients every day. I mean, I was just, you know, turning down work left and right, which is a good problem to have. 
but then this year, you know, honestly, I was scrambling a bit to try and find clients. So uh, something something changed in there. I'm not sure if the market shifted or whatever. But uh, so, yeah, but mainly for me personally, I just felt like I wasn't moving forward. And that's a feeling I don't like. So, um, you know, it was I need to go somewhere where I felt like uh, they were doing new things and they were kind of. Uh, moving in a direction that was more the future. I felt like sitting at home writing the same sorts of menus for iPhone apps just wasn't moving anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I get that a lot. I was at the same job for many, many years, and it was the same thing every day. And I was just like, I, I, I need something new. I need, I need to be challenged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and I think, too, I don't know, there's been a lot of discussion about I know the iPhone, the iOS marketplace and kind of this race to the bottom with apps and how, you know, is it worth our time to develop this and maintain it because we're not going to get money for it and, and what do we do? And yeah, um, I can see how maybe that played into the issue of finding clients, you know, for you as a freelancer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the days of, of putting out an app and getting paid for, for people buying it, I think are certainly gone. Uh, the... Uh, the clients that I was working with, uh, all of those apps were basically uh, part of their marketing strategy. They view the app as a form of marketing. Uh, they were always free apps. I didn't think I ever worked on a, an app that a client was actually going to sell for money. And uh, so, yeah, now I'm back in mobile games. I was mainly doing mobile productivity, but now I'm back into the games. And the companies that are succeeding in that space are, uh, they are data mining companies, basically, that, uh, I mean, my current my new employer is that they're a data mining company that just also happens to make some kind of games on the side. Uh, and that's where they're successful. That's why they're successful. It's all about uh, figuring out, you know, it's, it's they're aggressive about uh, A-B testing and analytics gathering and all this kinds of stuff. So, you know, they have more uh, data scientists than they have game designers, you know, on a team. So that's uh, that's interesting to me. And that is the future, I think, of, of, of apps for sure. It's the only business model anyone's found that works. Uh, and after the race to the bottom happened, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think it's really sad too. My favorite, my favorite game is Kingdom Rush on iPad. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like it on the iPhone as much. And so they released a new one, a new version yesterday, and it was, you know, five dollars. And I think I remember paying twenty dollars for the first one, and now it's five dollars with an app purchase. And you know, I'm, I'm just um, curious, I guess, as to where where this is going to be in a year or two or five. And, and what these games that, you know, I love or these apps that I love are going to look like then. And, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think where the future is, is uh, I think that uh, the, the hardcore game market, I mean, from a gameplay standpoint, you know, these, these free to play games just tend to not be very good, honestly. Uh, you know, they just aren't up to the level of a AAA console game as far as uh, the gameplay experience and the, the refinement of the design and so on. And I think that's where the future is for mobile games is that uh, they've figured out a business model that works. Uh, you know, the AAA business model is dying. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they're, these big AAA game companies are making these incredibly expensive, uh, you know, huge projects that take years and years to build. And they're selling them to the same five or 10 million hardcore gamers, you know, for 60 to $80 every five years. And that market is shrinking and that business model is dying. And uh, so mobile has figured out what the next business model is. And now we need to elevate the games because uh, players are, 
uh, are learning. Uh, they see through every new free-to-play stunt uh, that people uh, try to come up with to, to monetize people's time spent in the games. So uh, the next frontier on that is going to be actually making good games, I think. Yeah. You know, so and that's you see that happening. I mean, when this you know movement started, you had things like Farmville, which you know, frankly, from a game design standpoint, are garbage. And uh, now you're seeing things like uh, uh, like um, uh, Clash of Clans, you know, which is not quite a hardcore uh, tactical strategy experience, but it's getting there. It's, you know, what we might call a mid-core game. Uh, so there's some real genuinely good game design in that, but it still has that kind of uh, slightly cynical free-to-play business model. So uh, I think that's the trend is we're going to get increasingly hardcore with the game designs. Well, and I think... We need to. I think, um, I feel like mobile gaming has kind of been, casual mobile gaming has been this gateway to people um, that opens it up. Like, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of talk about like the moms playing Candy Crush and, um, and I think that's, that's fantastic. And so what happens if they want to play something else? Like, do they have to go to a console? Well, that doesn't seem, you know, that's not going to happen for a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can only, I, I can only play, you know, match threes and that kind of thing for so long before I'm like, all right, it's, it's the same thing again. So totally. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened is that mobile created 200 million new gamers that didn't exist before. And, you know, I mean, console games have been trying to do that for decades. They would kill for that kind of market growth. Uh, you know, like I say, they've been catering to the same shrinking hardcore teenage boy market for so long uh that they're trapped in that and mobile just kind of came came in and disrupted all that and said hey here's 200 million new people that want to play games and but as as we're sort of refining the palettes of those gamers uh we're having to to up the ante and uh, so my my uh, idea about what the future is, is probably is imagine all those people that spent you know hundreds of hours in some cases playing farmville uh imagine if we gave those people a genuinely good uh, farm building game or world building games, you know, hand those people SimCity or Civilization, you would melt their brains, right? Because mm-hmm. those are amazingly well-designed games. The challenge is that those games are uh, have incredibly steep learning curves and uh, require large time commitments. So we need to figure out how to bring those uh, refined hardcore game designs into uh, an audience that's used to playing games five minutes at a time and is used to a game being so approachable that there isn't even a tutorial in most cases. So compared to, you know, the latest iteration of Civilization where the tutorial is two hours long. You know? Oh my gosh. So uh, you, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get some and people who play mobile games in line for a movie aren't going to, you know, do that. So it's a, it's a new frontier of game design. I think there's, there's, it can be done. We just have to figure out how. Yeah, it's it's gonna be gonna be really interesting. I'm I'm trepidatious and excited at the same time to see where it goes. For sure. Yeah. So I do have I do have a question, and if you want me to take it out or don't want to answer it, that's that's cool. But okay. so part of part of the goal of less than or equal is to kind of um is to help people who are marginalized in like the tech and gaming and kind of geeky industries kind of give them some some people who have done it like like look at this person she's made this cool game or you know whatever um so I was wondering if you had any advice for people um who may be you know female or you know 
an ethnic minority or transgender or gay or, you know, in, in one of these communities, do you have any advice for helping them kind of not getting discouraged? Right. That it's a tough one. Uh, I guess it depends what industry, uh, someone wants to get into. Uh, you know, I will say, I guess I would probably recommend, uh, that someone steer clear, honestly, of AAA game consoles. Uh, that was that, a big part of the reason why I left that that industry to go into mobile was that the culture there I think is really toxic and I don't see it getting better soon uh, after you know we saw we saw with things like Gamergate uh, how deep that toxicity goes and uh, I for one don't no longer have the energy to fight that fight you know I fought it for 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 a decade or more and uh, I'm not sure it can be won I think there needs to be a, a cultural disruption. Uh, and uh, I think that cultural disruption is happening in mobile. You know, the, the same for this in the same way that uh, mobile games are played. Uh, in fact, by uh, in in majority by women, uh, there's a much better percentage of women making those games, and so that's it's uh, and minorities and, and and other marginalized groups. So I think it's definitely a more welcoming uh, area to start and. Aside from that, I guess it's like anything else. I mean, anyone who's in a marginalized group uh, has lived their whole lives with these same sorts of pressures. So it's kind of more of the same. You know, you're gonna uh, you're gonna encounter ignorance and bigotry, and you just kind of have to suck it up and you know hope that uh, things get better as you as you go along through your career. I guess. Um, so it, it, yeah, there's uh, not much to say beyond that. I guess. If it's something that you really, really love, that will help get you through it. You know, if uh, if you're in the job just because it's a job, then you know when when the pressure starts from uh, from intolerance or what or whatnot, then you're not going to have the energy to fight that. So yeah, passion has to be there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I've been talking to I have a couple of my past guests have worked for AAA Game Studios, and they do not anymore for kind of the same reasons that you've talked about. Yeah. Just- yeah, and it's a shame because it's a it you know it's it's an industry with merit, and I wish or I hope maybe it can be saved. Uh, I don't think I'm the person to do it anymore. Uh, there was a time when I thought maybe I could, but or at least contribute to the saving of it because uh, there's it's just as incredible amounts of talent. Uh, you know, the most talented people I've worked with have all been in, in AAA games. Uh, you know, my my friends and colleagues who work in other kinds of software companies, you know, enterprise software or uh, database software or whatever, uh, you know, I always tell them that uh, the people making AAA console games are, you know, the most talented by far. Uh, and uh, they're kind of unsung heroes. Nobody realizes how difficult of a problem, how difficult the problems are that we would solve every day in, in that job. And they don't uh, get a lot of recognition for that. But uh, yeah, the flip side is uh, it's such a difficult environment to work with unless you are you know, a 25-year-old straight white male. That's uh, the unfortunate reality. And there seems to be little interest in fixing it, so. Yeah, I know a lot of my listeners are straight white men. So, you know, they don't necessarily work in the AAA space. But I'm um, I'm heartened that at least people are starting to say, oh, wait a second, I need to. I need to stop and, and pay attention and think about what's going on at the very least. And 
you know, I think a lot of them are acting too. And I'm, I'm super proud and, um, and so glad that, that people are starting to do that. It just, the, the scale's got to increase if anything's going to happen. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, the, uh, for, for as bad as the atmosphere is in, in AAA, the, the vast majority of, of the men in, in the business are great. They're sweethearts and they're wonderful people and they just kind of don't know any better. They don't understand the little seemingly harmless things that they're doing every day that are contributing to the problem. And things like, uh, you know, Anita Sarkeesian's uh, death threats and Gamergate and all the rest of it, I think are shining a light on that and they're making these these nice guys see all see what's really been happening and how they're accidentally contributing in some ways to it. And uh, I think that's been big. So what we're gaining now is allies and that's really what what we need is allies. So uh it's there's definitely there's reasons for optimism I think for sure. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we're not quite at an hour, but um we can go ahead and wrap up now. Um I don't really want to end. I feel like that's a sad note. We had such a good conversation. <laughs> now it's like, ugh, things are kind of sucky. Um, but I have so greatly enjoyed talking to you, Quinn. Thank well, you likewise. for coming on the show. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Um, if people want to find out more about you, how can they, how can they do so? Let's see. Well, uh, there's my uh, website, which is quindunky.com. And I've also got a hacking blog, which is at quindunky.com slash blondiehacks. And, uh, the the latter is just kind of my uh just all my hacking projects there's some retro computing on there there's some pinball on there there's some race car stuff on there anything that uh you know one of my other hobbies is writing i really like to write so uh whenever i do one of these projects i photograph it and write about it and just stick it up on my blog so oh, and you um, make coasters i do i make coasters and any kind of yeah crafts or, or mechanical things software things whatever uh anything is fair game and it all goes up on the blog so there's that and uh i guess that's probably the best way is yeah through those two avenues okay well i'm excited to keep up with your blog and find out what you're into next i feel like you've got so many different projects and so many different things you're interested in that it's always going to be interesting to yeah to I, I wish there was more hours in the day for sure i know oh and another thing that people can do is do you want to talk about your patreon oh yeah so i recently uh am trying out patreon for my blog uh i was uh i tried ads as a way to kind of supplement the income of the blog i mean the blog is uh definitely costs me money to run it uh the, the hosting and and buying supplies for the projects and so on so i tried ad revenue and that wasn't working so uh, i tried i did donations for a while through paypal and that that worked but um people had to be reminded all the time so uh, patreon has been working out really great so People can sign up uh, as a patron of the blog, and anytime I release a, a substantial article, um, they'll get they'll automatically contribute uh, to that. And you know, any it can be a dollar, it can be twenty dollars, or, or whatever people are comfortable with. And uh, uh, it's of course totally optional. Uh, you know, I'm going to make the blog no matter what. But uh, I really, really appreciate when people uh, pitch in a little bit to uh, help with the effort. Yeah, the the hosting and 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 time is not cheap. It really, yeah, it really isn't. And uh, yeah, I love Patreon because it's sort of a way to uh, directly support the creators and artists in the world that you want to see more of their work. So, you know, if there's someone making amazing cross-stitch tea cozies of, you know, retro game characters that are amazing, you know, Patreon lets you say, hey, 
it's a way to vote with your wallet. Hey, keep doing what you're doing because it's amazing. So uh, I hope people feel that way about my blog. Well, it seems like it's working. I, I saw that the average donation to to your blog was $5 per person. So you're pretty yeah. close to it. So I think that's really neat. Yeah, there's uh, it's sort of a mix. There's uh, I've got lots of $1 supporters and a couple that uh, seem to really believe in me and are kind of uh, uh, really pitching in. So uh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a nice mix. It's nice to see, honestly. It's kind of rewarding to put out the call for new patrons and people sign up, you know, and it just it's a nice little warm fuzzy that, hey, you know, we really do believe in what you're doing here. I mean, it's I'm never going to pay my mortgage doing that, but uh, it, uh, it helps offset the, the hosting costs and so on. So Awesome. Well, Quinn, again, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed this time. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. You can find the show on Twitter, at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to lessthanorequal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it'd be great if you'd leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.